The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, let's continue to worship together now as we look to God's Word and hear what He has to say as He speaks to us through His Word in Scripture. And if you want to turn your Bible to Psalm 127, about the middle of your Bible there, that's where we'll be today. And some guy was preaching on a psalm. Okay, time to get a pillow. And that was the wrong attitude, because this is the living Word of God. Every passage in the Bible is inspired, and God wants to use it to challenge us, to grow us, to feed us. And the Psalms are no exception. Uh, And Psalm 127 is a beautiful one. I chose it not because it was technically a Mother's Day psalm, but it definitely applied to moms, family living, very specifically. But it, it goes beyond that. It applies actually to, to everyone. That's why uh, it's broad sweeping in its application and challenge. And whether you are a mom, whether you're married or single, male, female, or really even despite regardless of your age, this psalm applies directly to you and to me. The principles here and they are so basic and foundational, fundamental So let's look at it together and just glean some highlights out of it and see how we can apply this to our life as God speaks through this great psalm, probably written by Solomon, 1000 B.C., which means it's about 3,000 years old. Amazing. 3,000 years old, yet it's still the living, active Word of God that penetrates hearts and convicts and blesses. Uh, Follow along as I read, starting at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late and then to eat the bread of painful or toilsome labors. For God gives to his beloved even in their sleep. Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Beautiful passage. Uh, I moved here with my family about a little more than 10 years ago, so going on 11 years, to the Bay Area or is it the Silicon Valley or northern central California or whatever it is. But, uh, oh, Scott, somebody back there, sound guy. We're having problems. I hear a... Oh, okay. We're good. Sorry. So I moved here about 10, 11 years ago. Uh, grew up in Denver, lived there 19 years, been back a few times, uh, then lived in Southern California for, I don't know, almost 10 years, close to it anyway. And Southern California life is distinct in its own, and it's, it's pretty busy. And then we lived in Utah, northern Utah, for a while, for two years, and then went to Southern Texas for about three years. And then spent two weeks in Kiev. Yeah. I was thinking... Uh, just thinking about my last 10 or 11 years here in the Bay Area, the Silicon Valley, uh, some things that come to my mind immediately are, is just how life here in the Bay Area in the Silicon Valley is very different. I met with a pastor this week over coffee, and he currently lives in Ohio. He's getting ready to move back here to the Berkeley area where he was born and raised, and he's going to minister there shortly. But he's been able to spend time living in Ohio with his wife because she's from there, and he's just saying, and, and he's visiting this week back in his home stomping around here in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, and he just, even growing up here, being away for a while and then coming back, he was just kind of shocked at the pace of life here in the Silicon Valley. So he's telling me, this is a native of the area. He knows what was in store when he got here. So he's just saying him and his wife are trying to prepare to move back to the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. I haven't already lived here once before. That just kind of stuck out in my mind. I thought, oh, okay, so I'm not crazy about the Silicon Valley or the area here. And so here are thoughts that came to my mind as I compare living here in the Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, of other places that I have lived. This is my opinion. You can't scrutinize it and say it's wrong. It's my opinion, okay? My subjective opinion that life here in the Silicon Valley is fast-paced compared to all the other places that I've lived. Much more fast-paced. Frantic and I would say even frenetic. It is busy. Busy, busy, busy and very complicated. It is very success-oriented. Everybody's in a hurry, or so it seems. On the fly, on the run, on the move. 
I see a tremendous emphasis on tasks and to do the, the to-do list here. And not on relationships. Going wider, not necessarily deeper. There's multitasking ad infinitum here in the Bay Area. Goal-oriented mindsets reign supreme. I'm impugning myself, by the way, in many of these adjectives and synonyms because I can be this way in some of these. Uh, big emphasis on high achievement, high volume, high output, high expectations, pressing deadlines, coupled with all of that in terms of the mindset and attitude and motive. It's very secular here in this area and very individualistic. It's not, it's not a calm place. It's not, I don't find it a serene place. And I'm speaking as of the wider, broader culture in which we live. It's not real friendly to community, being community oriented. It's not technically family friendly either. But welcome to the Silicon Valley. And uh, like I said, that's just the broader culture in, gener- in general. But no matter where you live, you're always a byproduct of your culture, whether you like it or not, if you're objective about it. And, and you, it's good to do evaluation and think, okay, how is the culture, the broader culture and the secular culture and the worldly culture and their priorities, is that influencing me? And if so, how is it influencing me and how is it manifesting itself in my life, in the life of my family? That's just a good question to ask. So. That's what I wanted to do with Psalm 127 for all of us is just do a a good time to just stop, breathe, be still, look to God's word and do a diagnostic starting at your own personal life in terms of your relationship with God and then with your own family life and your own church life. And then as a result of the divine grid of Psalm 127, maybe some Vetting needs to be done or recalibrating and readjustments need to be done in your personal life as a Christian and also in your family life in terms of your goals and what direction you're headed. So that's my goal today. And that's why this is such an appropriate song to do that. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, we've got five verses and four truths that I want to share with us so we can try to implement these in our life. And so the first truth I want us to think about regarding this theme, by the way, My Bible says the theme of Psalm 27 is that prosperity comes from the Lord. That's appropriate because that's what it's talking about. Prosperity comes from God. And that's true. What do you mean by prosperity? Well, it's not just wealth and materialism. Prosperity from a biblical point of view. True success in life comes from God and only from God. True blessing, true fulfillment, true satisfaction comes only from God. And when you make him the priority, that is the point of this entire passage uh, the first truth is in verse 1, and that is, I want us to, to know the premise. Know the premise of this psalm. What is the premise? Well, the premise is that all prosperity comes from God. And by prosperity, referring to all those things I just said, uh, said true success, blessing, fulfillment, satisfaction, true meaning in life comes from God. He's the author of anything that is significant, eternal, and that which satisfies, and that's the point of this passage, all Prosperity comes from God, and that's verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless God is in charge. By the way, that phrase there, the house, can refer to two things. It does frequently interchangeably in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms and Proverbs. The house can refer to literally a physical building. The time you invest energy and whatever, blood, sweat, and tears into building something like a home that eventually a family is going to live in and raise their family. So house can refer to a physical building, and many times it also refers to a family, a family of people, a mom, a dad, children, extended relatives, a home, home life. And how appropriate is that as we think about Mother's Day and just our families in general and our lives as we lay them before God? Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord is in charge of the family, unless God is the the head of your home. That's what it's saying. And by the way, in the Hebrew text, The word Lord, or God's personal name, is emphatic. It's in an emphatic position. He comes first and foremost, or He should be the priority. He even is so in the grammatical text itself. His name comes first. Yahweh needs to come first. God needs to come first. The Lord needs to come first. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless God is in charge of your family and your life and all of your relationships, they labor in vain who build it. They labor in vain. The word vain occurs three times in this passage. 
Two times in verse 1 and one time in verse 2. Vain, vain, vain. Vanity, vanity, vanity. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes says. Vanity means meaningless. Ultimately, worthless. That's what it means. Vain, vain, vain. Meaningless, worthless waste of time if God is not in charge of your house and your endeavors. Because all prosperity, all blessing, all true success comes from God. He spearheads it. He gives it. He is the giver of all good gifts. Nothing good in your life, nothing good in my life came to me without God first giving it to me as the provider. Everything good that I have in my life is a blessing and a direct gift from God Himself. So God needs to be front and center of everything. He needs to be the circumference and the epicenter of everything in our worldview as Christians. That's what this passage is saying. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city... Now, if you were to think about it, if I were to ask all of you to write down on a piece of paper, okay, write down what you are concerned about most in life. What are your most basic, ultimate priorities and concerns or needs in life? And you come up with a short list, and maybe I gave you five. Well, you might say, well, wow, a place to live, uh, relationships to be in that are secure, safety, just general safety and well-being in my life. We, we are concerned about safety. If you're a parent, you're very concerned about the safety of your children, regardless of how old they are. So just in these basic areas of life, provision, a job, money to live and survive on, the, the ultimate basics. Uh, that's what this psalm is talking about. Unless the Lord builds the house, he's involved in family living and everything that makes up family living. If he isn't uh, the sole center of your family life, then all the energy you're pouring into building your house and trying to take care of your home and your family, it is a waste. It is vanity if God is not in charge, if you're not leaning on him for all things. Then it goes on the second part of that verse. He says, unless the Lord guards the city, that refers to security or safety in your life. That's one of those maybe top five issues that we're concerned about life is I need security in my life. I want protection. I want safety for me and my family. That's just a basic desire and need of humanity. And so that's the second part of this verse. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman who's guarding the city with his spear, with his rifle, with his gun, whatever, whose responsibility it is, unless the Lord is actually ultimately up beyond the clouds guarding, watching over the city, if you don't have God's protection, all human effort is absolutely meaningless. It doesn't matter. So unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So the first part of this verse talks about uh, your personal life in the home, and the second part of the verse talks about your public life in the community, in civil life, in the city, maybe even at your work, personal and public it doesn't matter what your efforts and endeavors are, how you spend all your time, energy, uh, blood, sweat, and tears. If God is not ultimately the one who is in charge, then no matter what you're doing in all of these areas, it is vanity, vanity, a waste of time. It will come to naught. It means nothing. Ultimately, that's what that means. This is a great purpose statement of a Christian, isn't it? Because this is just nothing more than living a God-centered life or what we call a theocentric Life, a God-centered or a Christ-centered life or a Scripture-centered life. That everything we do, pursue, desire, how we live, how we think, we want everything to be filtered through what God thinks about it. That's what this is saying. So my question to you, my question to myself, as I was evaluating myself this week, man, I need, I need to be God-centered. I need to have God uh, on the throne of every area of my life. And I began to think of all the areas of my life, whether it's, my job, which is being a pastor, my family life, my role as a husband, my uh, free time, what I do for entertainment, how I spend my money, uh, my thought life, everything that I spend all my time and energy in trying to scrutinize it. God, are you really on the throne in every one of those areas of life? Quite humbling, quite convicting. But that's what this passage is challenging us to do. Is every area of your life God-centered, committed to Him? Proverbs 16.3 says this, Commit your works to the Lord. Submit everything to Him, whatever endeavor you're involved in. If it's something at work, or maybe you're a student and in school. God, I submit this to You. I want You to be the priority in this test, in my major, in my goal, in my career, how I spend my money. Proverbs 16.3, Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. God will bless it. He wants to bless His children. He wants to support His children. He wants to meet our needs. But we've got to come to Him. We've got to ask. We've got to lean and depend upon Him. That's not just an Old Testament concept. A couple of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. When I first became a teacher, when I got out of college and then out of seminary, I had the opportunity to teach. I was so excited. It was a, a Christian high school, actually 7th through 12th grade. 
And I was allowed to have my own room and I could decorate it however I wanted to. And I went and looked at all the teachers' rooms. Man, they had all kinds of stuff. They were good at decorating. I wasn't very creative. So I just got a bunch of letters, cut them out, and stuck it on the top of the front wall. And it just said, uh, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. That was my decoration. Kind of plain, but it was the first thing you saw, and it just kind of shocked you into reality. Because I wanted that reminder every single day when I stepped into the classroom. Uh, I want everything to be submitted to God. I want him to be in charge. I want him to have the glory for all things. And I need to be reminded of that because I am by nature self-centered. And that was the another verse, 1 Corinthians 10:31, whether then you eat or drink. I mean, those are the mundane things that happen every single day, eating and drinking. Your bowl of cereal, your Cheerios, eating and drinking, do it all to God's glory. Everything. Is God first and foremost in every area of your life? Uh, Colossians 3.17, here's a great one, Colossians, which is a similar uh, truth. Colossians 3.17, talking to a Christian community here and how they manage their relationships. And it says, and whatever you do, whatever you do, there it is. It's a blanket, general, universal statement. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, He is God. He is Yahweh. So He is in Psalm 127. You can put Jesus' name right where it says Yahweh in Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless Jesus builds the house. He's God. He is Yahweh. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to be doing it all in His name? Doing it all committed to Him. Doing it all thinking of Him. Doing it all in submission to Him. Doing it all scrutinized by Scripture in honor to Him in every area of life. That's what God God has called us to do as believers. That is a great truth. All prosperity comes from God. And prosperity only comes from God in every venue of life. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless God is in it and he's running it and he's in charge and he's the boss, then you are wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. It is futile. What a great reminder as we are so often pulled from every direction by the world. Their goals, their priorities, right? Their agenda. We're getting pulled all the time. We need this reminder. We need God's help. We need to pray to God and ask him to help us. I've got some diagnostic questions and this is for all of us. I had to run myself through this gauntlet of questions to be humbled and to be chastened and reminded and also encouraged thinking am i committing everything in my life to god so listen to these questions and see if any of them apply to you and you don't have to answer out loud because you might embarrass somebody sitting next to you so answer these in your own mind okay i just tried to pick the most basic areas of life that are common to almost all of us Uh, number one what are your goals in your marriage do you have any goals you should what are your goals in your marriage? When was the last time you evaluated your marriage? Thought, and didn't think about your spouse, but you thought about yourself. And asked yourself, well, what are my goals in my marriage? Because I guarantee we fall into one of two camps. We, God is either in our marriage, He is in charge, He's the boss, He's building our marriage, or He's not. Unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord builds the marriage, they labor, those two married people labor in vain who try to build their marriage. So that's a great question uh, that I had to think about. What are your goals in your marriage? Are you trying to change your spouse? Is that your goal? Because that's a common goal. I do marriage counseling. 100 people surveyed, top five answers on the board. Number one answer. Things couples do wrong, or spouses. They try to change their spouse. That's not God-honoring. Are you trying to change your spouse as your goal, or are you trying to serve your spouse as your goal? Because that's a God-honoring goal right there, serving your spouse. Great challenge, isn't it? Not easy to do. So what are your goals in your marriage? Question number two, what is the goal in your job, place of employment? If you have a job outside of the home and you're getting paid for it, what is your goal? Do you have any goals? What is your goal this week? Have you even thought about it? Where do you want to be three years from now in your job? Maybe it's out of that job and in another one. I don't know. But it's good to think about, isn't it? Maybe some of you don't have a job, but those of you that do have a job, what is your goal right now in your job? Is it honoring God or not? Is He the center of all things or not? What's the goal of your job? Is it to make money and that's it? Is it to get noticed? Is it to get a promotion? Is it to get accolades? Is it to be accepted by your peers and colleagues? Hope not. Or is it one that honors God? Uh, your goal in your job is to please and honor God in all things and just... Ask God to be used as He wants to use you at whatever level He wants to use you. 
That, that is God honoring. That's putting God in charge or actually allowing Him to be in charge and getting self out of the way. So question number three after what is the goal of your job is what are the goals with your kids? For those of you that are parents and you're raising your children, what are your goals? I thank God for a class that I had to take in seminary before I graduated. And it was called The Pastor and His Family. And it was taught by one of the professors who had pretty much raised his two or three kids. And the wives were required to take the class if you were married. So my wife, Debbie, we took the class together and it was 18 weeks long and we had homework. And one of the assignments that he forced us to do was read the book of Proverbs together and just write down a whole bunch of principles from Scripture out of the book of Proverbs of developing your own personal philosophy of how to raise children. Because that's why that book was written. So Debbie and I, we did it. So we came up with like three pages, wrote it down. I typed it, kept that thing for years. I think I still have it. And I look back at it after 18 years of parenting. I think, man, those were good principles. Wow, those were profound, man. We are good. No, actually, we're not good. We got them out of the Bible. I'm like, God, God is so wise. These were 3,000-year-old principle, principles that God gave to his people. We simplified them, wrote them down, and they are so practical, so true, unchanging. They transcend time, culture, every child's personality. It's awesome. God made kids. He knows what he's doing. So we came up with a philosophy of parenting. I thank God for that teacher because he was trying to get us to have God at the center of our thinking when it came time to be entrusted with children and how we raise them. Because if we didn't have God's direction, we would raise children according to our own agenda. And that is easy to do, isn't it? And even with those principles, I find myself at times wanting to raise my own children according to my own agenda, not according to what God really wants. So it's a great challenging question. What are the goals... As you raise your children as parents, what are, the, what are your goals for your kids? Man, some of us parents, we got some grandiose goals for our kids, don't we? We want them to be uh, greater than we ever were and excel way beyond what we ever were. Man, I got up to, I think, a 2.4 one time, but my kid, they're going to be 4.0 and nothing less. It's like, hmm, that's a little unrealistic. But we do that as parents. So what are your goals for your kids? Boy, if you don't have any, you better write them down because if you don't have them consciously and in writing, you're going to parent with goals whether you realize it or not. So what are your goals, parents, Are uh, with your kids? Is it to make them do or achieve what you want? I see that all the time with parents. Do you make them major in the area that you want when they go to college? I've seen that a lot too. I've, I've counseled all kinds of college graduates and people in college. And So what was your major? Oh, such and such. Wow, that has nothing to do with your job today, does it? No, it doesn't. I hated that major. Oh, really? Wow. Why'd you do it? Because my parents made me. I was like, wow. That's sad. That was a learning lesson for me to take note of that. But that happens. So what are your goals for your kids? Is it to make sure that they get the GPA that you want? The grades that you want them to have? Uh, is it to choose the career path that you want them to have? Is it to go to the college that you want them to go to? I had to deal with this one. I mean, I went to the greatest college in the history of the world. I'm, why are you laughing? I'm not exaggerating. Man, I love my, my alma mater. And from the time I graduated and got married, thought, and then we had our first kid, okay, I know where this kid's going. It's done. We don't even have to pray about it. There's some things you don't have to pray about. We don't need to pray about this one. Boom, this is where they're going. And believed it with great passion. It was desire of my heart. And then when my oldest got into high school, ninth grade, then my attitude changed. Like, wow, reality has set in. They actually have their own opinion about some things. Huh, okay. <laughs> Never really considered that variable. I better start praying and brainwashing because the trajectory doesn't look good. But it was a great time for me. And actually, God just kind of started working on my heart that I need to be open to the will of God. And there were actually people who were talking to me at that time who uh, a pastor up in Vallejo whose kids went off to one of his kids went off to the master's college, his oldest. And then she dropped out of college and the parents were cool with that. And uh, then she went into some profession that had nothing to do with her major and the parents were OK with that. And then I just saw her again last week and she is doing fantastic she doesn't even have a college degree, but she is in the will of God, being productive with the blessing of her parents. It's awesome. So he kind of jolted me with that surprise because I thought, man, we were in together, man. With our daughters with the same names going to the same college. And uh, 
so that was great for me. And so then we just kept praying and then, you know, it became evident God was leading elsewhere and into a major and a calling, life's calling that was different. Something actually that I had never even thought of or conceived, never even would have dreamed of. And then my wife and I just praying and asking for God's wisdom and direction that God would help in this whole process. And God has been helping we trust and that he's leading the path. And so we just had to learn to, okay, we got to kind of get back and watch God go and do his thing as he leads our children as they grow older. So we need to be submissive. So that was a good learning lesson for me. So what are the goals for your children, parents? Are you running the show or is God running the show and all your desires for them? Or, so those that's the, not the way to do it. Here's what our goals should be as parents for our children. Do you hope that they love and serve Christ when they are older? Man, shouldn't that be priority number one? I don't care what my kid does for a living or how much money they make or who they marry or where they live. Are they, they going to love Jesus Christ and serve Him wherever they go? That has been my greatest heart's desire from the first time we were privileged to bring another person into this world. And that's where the priority should be because that's what God wants. Or, here's another good one that parents should have, a goal for their children, that your goal is that they do their best in school as unto the Lord, which is not synonymous with 4.0 or A+. The attitude needs to be, just do your best. Can you honestly say that you did your best? That you tried to honor God, you were good with your time, and you just did your best to your ability. Okay, maybe it was not an A+. Maybe you're a B-minus kind of person in this subject. Hey, did you do your best? Praise God. By the way, B means good. Did you know? Yeah, somebody's laughed. B means good. Good is good. So what are your goals for your kids uh, in their abilities and school and achievement? Uh, are you, is one of your goals for your children that they choose the career that God wants them to choose? That's huge. That's a life's calling, isn't it? I think God needs to be sovereign in that choice. Uh, do you want them to marry that God, the spouse that God wants them to marry? Of course, all the basics, you know, God wants another Christian to marry a Christian and all those things. He needs to be in charge. Do you want uh, your child to have the life that God wants them to have? And then last question is, what is your definition for success in parenting? It's a good thing to think about. I know I was challenged with those questions. Okay, question number four. This is the last one. Uh, what is your goal at your church where you serve? Is it to be entertained? To hear good music? To be comfortable? Because these are common reasons why people go to church and pick churches. I know that because I've been pastoring in different churches for almost 20 years. Six different churches, five. Uh, is your goal to get your needs met at church? That's a common one because by nature as humans we are so self-oriented. Uh, is your goal at church, whether you realize it or not, to judge, criticize, and complain about all the deficiencies at the church and all the people that go to that church? If it is, that's pretty sad. I don't even know why you're going to church. Or do you have godly goals and God is on the throne in charge of your mindset and your worldview about why you should go to church? Are your goals to learn the word of God at church? Because that's what a church is supposed to be doing. Is your goal to worship God in spirit and in truth? Because that's why we're supposed to gather together as saints as the church. Is your goal when you go to church to grow in grace as a gracious person? To grow. We're all growing together. None of us has arrived. Is your goal at the church and when you go to church to bless and serve others? As Ephesians 4 says, and all those one another's. That's what it's all about, blessing and serving other people. It's not about you. It's not about me. And then finally, is your goal when you go to church to help build and edify the body of Christ? Because, again, that's the theme of Ephesians 4, is God is trying to build up, raise and mature His church, the body of Christ, and He uses His fallen, sinful people to do it in the process. Great goals. Final Independent questions. Have you committed every area of your life to God, asking Him to be the Lord of it? Good challenge this week to think it through. Uh, do you ask God for wisdom routinely for decisions you make in life, especially the important and big decisions? Are you asking God when, you, when you're fretting about something or you don't know about something and you're at a loss? Before you go ask somebody, first consult God, the God of the universe, your personal God and Father and Savior. That's James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Ask God. Plead with God. God, give me wisdom. Do you know that God will answer the prayer 100% of the time? He will give you the wisdom you need when you ask Him in faith. He answers that 100% of the time. Because that's the promise in the passage. He doesn't give you what you want 100% of the time. He answers that prayer by giving the wisdom that you need 100% of the time. Big difference. 
Uh, do you seek the advice of a multitude of godly counselors when making major decisions? As scripture requires. Or are you an independent operator as you live your life? And a maverick. Are you self-willed or are you willing to uh, learn and be teachable and be humbled and grow and change your mind and change your opinion and submit always to God's word and God's will when you discover it and find out what it is and deny yourself because that's the calling we have as Christians. This is hard. This goes against our nature as humans, doesn't it? I know it does for me. Being naturally self-oriented and self-centered. So anyway, those are some great questions, at least for me as I was trying to scrutinize and evaluate and take a blowtorch to my own life and worldview and the desires of my heart to make sure that they've been purified and chastened and exposed. Because that's what Psalm 127 is saying. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So what a great truth. Know the, the premise, and that is that all true prosperity and blessing comes from God. Uh, number two is in verse two. Uh, another great truth there after know the premise is avoid the problem. Well, what is the problem that hampers the way and short circuits God being in control of your life in every area of your life is when we get in the way. When we get in the way. Uh, the number one false religion in the world is works righteousness. That means people trying to do their own thing to earn favor and uh, acceptance before God. Human beings, we've been doing that for 6,000 years. We continue to do it. It comes naturally uh, to roll up our sleeves and to get down and do the nitty-gritty and, and try to earn our own way, our own path, our own uh, goals and accomplishments, and even in the area of religion. And that's why verse 2, we're reminded of this great truth. Avoid the problem. What is the problem that keeps God out of the way, that keeps His blessing from blessing our endeavors? And that's verse 2. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late. This is a person who, stay, who gets up very early to begin the day. Oh, got stuff to do. Here's my checklist. Here's the 50 zillion things I need to do. And all they're thinking about is their agenda and everything they've got to get accomplished for their end. So this is a self-centered person. By the way, in this psalm, God never denigrates, disparages, or condemns hard work. He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, God commends hard work in the book of Proverbs and in the Psalms. So there needs to be a proper balance here. God doesn't condemn hard work. God condemns godless work. That's the emphasis here. So he talks to this really busy, it could be a really busy Silicon Valley person. What a great bio right here. It is vain for you, it is vanity for you, it is worthless for you, it is a waste of time for you, it is wrong priorities for you to rise up early and to retire late. Creating these long days, fabricated days, unrealistic days of so-called production to get your agenda done whether in your personal life, at your job, whether you want to do it or your boss has got the whip to you making you do it, this is not good. If it is godless, if it is not God-centered or not Christ-centered with the wrong motive, with the wrong priorities, it is vanity, vanity, vanity. And every one of us is prone to this. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat, to ultimately the byproduct is to eat the bread of painful labors, to eat the bread of toilsome labors. That means, well, you did a lot of work, you did produce something, but in the end it wasn't blessed by God because God wasn't at the center of it. And what you've got as an end result is something that you don't have true satisfaction with. It isn't truly fulfilling. You don't have peace of mind. That's the specific terminology used at the end of verse 2. Painful labors, toilsome labors, vexing labors. You have a troubled heart. You have a paycheck and a troubled heart and a troubled mind. You can't sleep at night. Has that ever happened to you? Because of the worries of the world? Because you haven't rested and given it to God and cast it into His lap and His care? That's what this is saying. Man, you can work, 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 and it does absolutely no good if your priorities and your focus isn't right, if you don't let God be in charge. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell Mary and Martha when He came to their house. And Mary, Martha was doing a lot of stuff, doing this, doing that, doing this, doing that. And then she comes and she starts complaining about her sister who's not doing anything. And then Jesus said a very important thing. He said a lot of things in a very succinct statement. But one thing he says is, Mary, you, seem, you are very troubled and worried about much. Man, you are thinking about too much. You're thinking about things that only God can handle. Lighten the load. Rest in God. Let Him be in charge. God wants His children to be at peace. God wants His children to have peace of mind. God wants His children to not be overwhelmed by fretting and anxiety and worry and depression that weighs us down, where we lose the vitality of life and even sleep itself. That is not God's intent. It's the end of verse 2. You are so burdened and 
weary from wrong priorities through your pursuits when you need to realize at the end of verse 2, for He gives to His beloved even in their sleep. I love what Charles Spurgeon, a pastor, a British pastor from a hundred years plus ago, says about this reality. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. Here's what uh, Pastor Spurgeon said. Because we are to rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do as believers. All anxious care is vanity and vexation. We are to be diligent. For this the Lord blesses. Remember, God doesn't condemn work. We are to be diligent. For this the Lord blesses. But we are not to be anxious. For that dishonors the Lord and prevents His favor. Some deny themselves needful rest. The morning sees them rise before they are rested. The evening sees them toiling long after day's end. Remember when we started this church, one of the elders counseled me and just reminded me, just a little advice in life. Man, you know, you just got to pull the plug at a certain time of the day, Cliff. Just kick back, relax, and lay down and go to sleep and just be at rest and just trust God with all the other details. Church haven't even started yet, and I was so thankful for that because I've thought about that a zillion times. Taking rest in that great truth. I am not in charge. I'm not God. They hasten to bring themselves into the sleep of... Oh, the evening sees them toiling long after day's end. Well, I've got a lot to do. Well, I'm a workaholic. They hasten to bring themselves into the sleep of death by neglecting the sleep that refreshes life. Nor is sleeplessness the only index of their daily worry. They limit themselves to small quantities of common food. And even what they swallow is washed down with the salt tears of grief. For they fear that their daily bread will fail. Hard-earned is their food, scantily rationed and scarcely sweetened, and it is perpetually smeared with sorrow, all because they have no faith in God and no joy except in hoarding gold. The Lord would not have His children live like this. He would have them leading a happy and restful life. Man, that is just good news. How refreshing. That, that is God's desire for His people. So Spurgeon had it right. God would have his children leading a happy and restful life, a peaceful, content life. Now, that's the one thing that stood out when I spent, it was about four years ago, I had the privilege to spend five days at a conference in North Carolina at the Billy Graham Center where John MacArthur was there for five days. So I got to spend a lot of time with John MacArthur and his wife, Patricia. Just the two of them and Steve Nelson and a couple others seeing them in different settings and in their cabin and at off hours and whatever. And the one thing I came away with is, man, this guy is, he's probably one of the busiest people in the world, at least that I know. But he was the most relaxed person I'd ever seen. He was never in a hurry. Uh, he was never frantic or panicked. He even walked slow as we're strolling down the, the, the city shopping. And we're like, wow, how does he get everything done? He's so at peace and so is his wife. And man, that was just a great... Learning lesson. You know, Jesus was never in a hurry either. And who was busier than Jesus? Nobody. Had the right priorities and knew what it was to, to rest in God and to entrust certain things to Him that you couldn't solve. A hard earned as their food. Uh, oh, the Lord would not have His children live like this. He would have them leading a happy and restful life as princes of the blood do. Because we are princes of the King, aren't we? Let them take a fair measure of rest and due portion of food for it is for their health. True believers will never be lazy or extravagant and they will not think it needful or right to be worried or miserly. Faith brings calm and banishes the disturbers who both day and night murder peace. And that's just good stuff. And eloquently summarizes that great truth that... Uh, all this energy, human effort is not enough. Human effort without the blessing and priority of God is not enough to achieve what we, need, what we want to achieve in life. And when it's all just go, go, go and blood, sweat and tears without what God wants, without God being in charge and Him directing the steps and us getting in front of the Holy Spirit, it's vanity, vanity, vanity. And it's not going to, it may produce material results, but it's not going to bring true satisfaction and fulfillment and peace in life, which is what God wants for His children. And that's the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's when you're walking in obedience to God. He blesses you with fruit in your life, in your attitudes, your demeanor, your mindset, your thought life. And the fruits are love, joy, joy, peace. In contrast to anxiety and fretting, God wants us, His children, to live with joy and supernatural peace. And we can in obedience to Him. So think about and evaluate your very, very busy life. 
and commit it to God. God, you need to take over. Colossians, I mean, Proverbs 16.3, commit your ways to the Lord. I can't handle it. You can't handle it. Only he can. Great truth. So all prosperity comes from God, and then human effort is not enough. So that was the premise and the problem. And then the last two here. Then rest in his provision. Rest in his provision. Rest in him. Cast all your anxieties to him in prayer, says Peter. Because why? Because he what? He cares for you. How personal and intimate is that? That is awesome. He cares for you. He wants your anxieties. He wants to relieve you of those. I've said it before. If you have anxieties, write them down. Because then that becomes your prayer list. Okay, God, here you go. Throw it in his lap. I want to trust you for this. So rest in his provision. Uh, that's the end of verse 2 I already alluded to. So instead of doing all this work, rising up early, getting up, or yeah, rising up early, getting going to bed late, and then having these painful uh, fretting labors of a byproduct, not with the blessing of God, that overwhelms our minds with worrying. Uh, in contrast, point number three I want to make is rest in his provision, and that is that God gives good gifts. We've got to remember that. God is the giver of all good gifts. We can't earn anything. Anything that is good, we can't earn it. Even if we put a lot of effort into something and there was a blessed byproduct, it was God who enabled you to do that in the first place. That's the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8.18. Do you not know, he said, Moses said to God's people, that it is the Lord who gives the power to make wealth. Man, I got a lucrative job. Well, you know what? God put you in that position. God gave you everything you needed to fulfill that job. Everything that you have came from God. That's what Paul said in Corinthians. What do you have that you did not get or receive? In other words, he's saying every good thing you've got in life is a gift from God. Treat it accordingly. Thank Him for it. God gives good gifts to His children. For at the end of verse 2, it says this, For He, God, gives to His beloved even in His sleep. This is kind of a rebuke and a reminder at the same time to Christians and believers who are fretting and doing what they can and rolling up their sleeves and always worried and working as hard as they can to produce the results. And God is just saying, man, relax a little. Chill! Get some sleep. Take a rest. Rest in God. Be still and know that He is God. Be refreshed in Him. Have some fellowship with the saints. Take a break. Put the to-do list down. Get your priorities right. And if you do, He will bless you. As a matter of fact, He will bless you. And if you look carefully enough, you will see that He's already blessed you in many ways. And you have disregarded those blessings. That's what the end of verse 2 is saying. For God gives to His beloved. God gives to the ones that He knows and loves without them even asking. God gives to His beloved in their sleep. Did you know that even while you're sleeping and while I am sleeping, God is giving good gifts to me and to you? We're not earning it. We're not deserving it. But God is still giving and He keeps on giving and He keeps on giving. Because when you're asleep, you can't do anything. Well, what are some of the gifts that God is giving me while I'm sleeping? How about your next breath while you're sleeping? Because you can't consciously think, okay, what if I stop breathing when I'm sleeping? I could die. Yeah, that's true. But God is so good, He's going to help you breathe while you're sleeping. Because He is the giver of all good gifts. He is the giver of basic life itself. So he gets real simple here to try to get it through our thick skulls here. God is the giver of gifts. Everything comes from him. You didn't earn anything. You didn't deserve anything. Anything you have that's good in your life came from him. And we need to be reminded of that. And every other endeavor needs to be submitted to him for his blessing. For he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. One other translation says, for God grants sleep to those he loves. Did you know that even refreshing, blessed sleep itself is a gift from God? People, when they get older, they start complaining about the inability to sleep. And many times it's because they have too much anxiety. They're worrying about too much of what still needs to be done. If you're one of those people that actually sleeps very well through the night and you just have this amazing, unexplainable peace of mind when you go to bed at night, that is a gift from God. And a Christian, you can do that. If you live life faithfully from day to day as a good steward of everything that God has called you to do and given to you to do, and you've done it to the best of your ability as faithfully as possible with a clear conscience, that's the key, with a clear conscience, you can lay your head down at night and sleep peacefully as a gift from God with zero anxiety. Because that's what this passage is promising. He will even give His children blessed sleep, refreshing sleep. That's what the Proverbs say as well. God will allow you to do labors without trouble being coupled with it. Peace of mind. God gives good gifts. One of the greatest gifts is peace and joy, contentment of heart, freedom from anxiety. It all comes from God. And then finally, uh, the last couple of verses there, after rest in his provision, is embrace the picture or the illustration. So he concludes all this with a practical picture and illustration. Verses 3 to 5 is intended to illustrate the principles of verses 1 and 2. 
And he takes one of the most common commodities in planet Earth, especially in the Jewish culture of the days, that most people were married and most people had children. And most children were just assumed, oh, yeah, we've got kids. That's a no-brainer. Yeah. And then God reminds parents, okay, speaking of the good giver and how we don't give him enough credit and uh, thanksgiving for the good gifts that he gives us, and uh, he reminds us and rebukes us in, in light of our human pursuits and uh, pursuing after materialism and wealth and uh, our reputations and those kind of things that really are futile and really don't matter in life. Uh, God's Holy Spirit through the author says, well, here's what really matters in life. And that's point number four. Embrace the picture. What is that? Recognize what really matters in life. Recognize what really matters in life as you evaluate, as I evaluate and look at my own life. What really matters? I've been married 22 years. Uh, I've been parenting for 18 years. Uh, I've been pastoring at this church for five years. Uh, I live at this house, whatever. But what really matters in terms of my agenda and everything I'm doing and pursuing? What really matters? It's a good question. It's a hard question. But I need to be honest in facing that. And what God says here, well, here's one thing that's really basic that matters. Behold, behold, get this. Pay attention. Get this. I mean, clue into this, he's saying. Children are a gift from God. Children are a gift from the Lord. If you have children, you didn't earn those children. You didn't deserve those blessed, wonderful, sweet, fantastic children. But God gave them to you anyway. God is A refrain repeated all throughout the Old Testament is the Lord opened the womb. The Lord opened her womb. The Lord opened the womb. No one could produce an offspring without God first opening the womb. He is the author and giver of life. He's the one that makes it happen. He uses human means, yes, to do it, but God is the giver of life. No human being enters this world as an immortal soul without God decreeing it first. And every children that has parents, every children is considered a gift from God. Start there, parents. Start there for a reality check of the blessings in our life and help us recalibrate what's really important in life. And if you've got children, that's where it needs to start. They are the most blessed gift you've been entrusted with by God over and above everything else. So in terms of your priorities and goals, we need to readjust, don't we? Think about, man, I've got four kids. Man, I've got four awesome kids. Thank you, God. They're more important than my house. See, unless the Lord builds the house. Well, I don't own a house. Because in the Silicon Valley or all over the place, you got to own a house. You haven't arrived until you own a house. Well, no. Proverbs says it's better to live in a tent with peace than have this nice fancy house with turmoil in that house, right? So children are a blessing from the Lord. They're intended by God to be a gift. Uh, but as always, every gift can be abused, can it? Every gift can be neglected. It can be squandered. It can be misused. Every gift can be idolized. And the same is true with our children, right? And if God gave all of us a gift and of children and the children turned out the wrong way, we did something to contribute to that somehow as the parents, whether it was abuse, neglect, whatever, lack of appreciation, misuse, idolizing. But that isn't God's intent. Uh, God, because He gives us children as gifts, He wants us to appreciate them, to value them, to utilize them wisely, to train them, to nurture them, to prize them, to invest in them, to protect them. Investing in them. I, I consider, men many respects, my four kids an investment. I am investing in their life for the long term. Because I, I believe God will bless me down the road if I raise my children in a certain manner. Because that's God's design. That's even what this passage says. Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's designed by God to be a reward, to be blessed, to bless parents. Like verse 4, here's the long-term reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are children of one's youth. And then they grow up, verse 5, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of those arrows so that he can use them, he can shoot them someday. Shooting arrows to protect yourself and also shooting arrows to gain food, provision. And that is a long-term blessing of children as they get older and grow up and become mature and responsible and independent, in turn they come back and hopefully they like their parents and hopefully they want to be around their parents and hopefully they want to bless their parents and provide for and protect their parents. That's what First Timothy says godly children should do. That's the long-term picture and design of God in terms of the investment of children. And by the way, the word when it says, Behold, the children, your children are a gift from the Lord, the word gift, sometimes translated as heritage, consistently in the Old Testament means a stewardship responsibility. So we need to care for them, and we're also accountable to God for them, and we have to give account to God for them. They are a stewardship responsibility. Unlike a lollipop, when somebody gives you a gift of a lollipop, you eat it. You don't have to give it back. Children, you have to give back an accounting at the end of their life. 
Behold, children are a gift from God. So the psalmist is trying to remind us, man, recognize what really matters in life. Look at the children you have before you. They're supposed to be living reminders of the goodness and blessing of God and reminding you and us of what our priorities in life should be. And that is our life should be lived in a God-centered manner. And for us as the church and as Christians, in a Christ-centered manner, in accordance with truth, as we find it in Scripture. If we live a life like that, God promises He's going to have His hand of blessing upon us because He wants His children to be blessed because He is a good and gracious Father, isn't He? Amen. With that, let's go ahead and go to the loving, caring Heavenly Father, the gracious Lord Jesus Christ, who is our friend and brother, and the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is our comforter, our advocate. What supernatural access we have to a supernatural God on such a personal level. God, we do thank you for who you are, for your goodness. God, just great reminders from the Old Testament and Scripture, how you care for your people, how you want your people, those who love you, today those who know you through Jesus Christ, how you want us to live lives that are honoring to you, but also lives that are free from anxiety and worry and becoming wearied. God, we know from Scripture you want us to rest in you. You even call us in Scripture to to be still and know that you're God, that you're in charge, God. So help every single one of us today to just stop. If there's a time today, uh, a time later in the week, or maybe we can help our mothers even in a special way to have a, a time of calm, sweet, serene time with you unencumbered by the worries of the world so they can just think about you, focus on you, focus on your goodness, be reminded that you are totally in charge of all things and that you love your children and want to bless them accordingly. And God, use your Holy Spirit to work inside of every one of us that knows you to produce the fruits of the Spirit, especially joy and peace, supernatural, as we've been talking about today, in a way that only you can. And God, when we sense and experience that supernatural peace, that calm that only you can give, that in response we'll recognize it is a direct and specific gift from you. We'll give you the glory. We will give you the honor for it. And thank you. Thank you so much for your love and care for us. God, we commit this time to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.